This episode of the 40 Minute Mentor is sponsored by the fantastic team at Treedom, a B Corp delivering social, economic and environmental benefits by working in partnership with local NGOs and smallholder farmers, enabling people and companies to plant trees remotely. You can personalise your tree with a name and digital message, which makes it a perfect gift for loved ones. The Treedom team have achieved some fantastic results in communities, and they're giving all of our listeners a 20% discount to use until the end of 2021. Simply head over to treedom.net and use the code 40 Minute Mentor at checkout. When I was little, I always wanted to be Goku from Dragon Ball Z, a diplomat, a lawyer. Wanted to work with animals. A uh, professional footballer. I, I love football, still love football. Well, I had two things, actually. I wanted to be a brain surgeon and a Formula One racing driver. Or prime minister. Smarter. Series five of the 40 Minute Mentor was packed with so much advice and incredible mentorship from some really inspiring leaders. So to relive some of my favourite parts of the series, we've put together a special two-part Best Bits compilation episode. In part one, you'll hear how Alice Bentink, co-founder of Entrepreneur First, assesses and selects founders for their highly sought-after accelerator programme. We'll also hear how Andy Davis, co-founder of 10x10, is driven by problem solving. And for him, the bigger the problem, the better, as far as he's concerned. And how Grace Beverly. CEO of Shreddy and Tala feels that old ways of working don't necessarily match our new ways of living. I love talking to all of my guests in this series. They were so passionate about what they do and generous with the wisdom they've accrued over the years. It's impossible not to be inspired by them and I'm excited to share this special episode with you. So please sit back, relax and enjoy the first part of this special 40 Minute Mentor Roundup episode. I absolutely loved talking to Andy Davis, the co-founder of 10x10. Here he talks about how he sees himself less as an entrepreneur and more as a problem solver, which should always be a key component to starting any business. I've never gone and pursued an entrepreneurial venture because I've wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've always had a problem in front of me and gone to solve it. And um, when I thought it was big enough or, or I thought it was a big enough problem for a lot of people, I've then gone to solve it for more people and thus it, it, those things became startups or businesses. I think that can start from little things like one day you buy a lot of, as, as there's, always this, there's always this kid in every school, you buy a lot of sweets and you start sending it to kids and then one day you outsell the vending machine and you do it for like a few months until you get told to, to not sell next to the vending machine anymore and stop sending sweets. Two, then you grow up to, I'm, I'm, I was the weird, the weird guy first year of uni who every time the lift pinged in our accommodation building, I'd pull people out the lift and have them come and answer a quick quiz in my room on whether or not they do something like answer, do something on the internet for this amount of money or whatever it is. And they just thought this guy's weird. And, um, and this would be absolutely anybody. And then I, I think, again, it just comes down to solving, solving problems. So w- when I first got going with some stuff, I remember we started a football-based business in 2009, 2010. And it was something called Prem Picker, where one would predict the Premier League table in advance 
in advance. And if you got it right then the season, you win 100K. We did not have 100K to give anybody. But, and it, but it was so early on the internet that the only things people were really doing were on, there were people on YouTube, they were on like skysports.com, and then some people like were on Facebook, and you were on these like major sites. There was less, there's a lot of micro sites, but people spend less time on them than they, than they do today, of course. So we just put this thing online, and within the week, we had like 2,000 people engage with it and create a friendly table. And I think, um, and we didn't know where they were from, we didn't really track anything. So to have people from all these different countries speaking different languages doing it was interesting, I think. And then, but when it comes to problem solving, it's so interesting because we did that. We started getting partnerships with the likes of the Guardian and um, now footytube.com, which I think is the number one football highlight site. But when they first got going, and a few others, and and then we had to build a team around us. The UCL gave us a uh, resource in the form of engineers and designers. But then one day I just woke up and said, I was the biggest football fan in the world. But I said, actually, we're not solving a problem. This this already exists, and it's so interesting, right? And it was like actually, when I put this thing on the internet, yes, it's fun. I didn't feel like we were solving a problem. And again, I, I stem from problem solving. And I was like, we're not solving a problem. So I think anyone could do this. They should just go to Sky Sports. They should go here. Yeah, I've got this Premier League table thing. I always cared about solving problems for people. That was always like, the most important thing for me to do. And thus went on to do some things in education and healthcare where the problems were, there were, there were larger pain points and obvious pain points with um, institutions involved. And I, I don't think I've been there until a few years ago, two years ago, someone said to me, oh, you haven't really done anything in the consumer space. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting, actually. Besides the football thing, like, in 2009. And I was like, that's really interesting, actually. I didn't think about it that way. And that's probably where, again, my lack of fear comes around sales and doing big things because I've always had to go sell to institutions who I may have had no business being involved in. So when it comes to a job, on paper, I think I'm very, very weak. I'm extremely weak. I'm, like, the weakest person in the whole world. No one would hire me. No one probably should hire me. I'm the guy who, if I got hired... I would, when everyone leaves at, leaves at five or something, I would just rearrange all the tables in the office and chairs to make it the most efficient for like people to get around and faster work. And then I'd get fired the next day. They'd be like, why do you spend your time doing that? <laughs> 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 I'd, probably move, I'd probably move chairs and tables outside and be like, actually, I don't think we need, I don't think we need all these people. So um, yeah, and jump forward a bit, we can go back. I remember even um, at one point, one point in my life, I remember applying for about two or 300 jobs. And I think I got six interviews I had six interviews, two second interviews, and didn't get one offer, right? And um, I was told at the time, just use your network, whatever. And I was like refusing. I was like, actually, why can't I just apply for jobs? I'm going to look for jobs online and apply. And that just tells you on paper, I'm very, very weak. In person, I think I'm a little bit better. If there's an entrepreneur gene, Rachel Carroll, the founder of Curry Kids, has it in spades. Here she talks about how she grew up believing she could do anything she turned her hand to. It's funny because my parents are both teachers, so you'd say, you know... Oh, just like me. There we go. That's amazing how many people's parents are teachers. (laughs) So, you know, you you might think, well, that's not very entrepreneurial, but actually who they are, and this is because of their specific backgrounds, you know, my... My dad, he's quite old. He's, he's in his 80s now. He was a child of the Depression. He was born in 1938. And his family growing up was very poor, had absolutely no spare money. And so they reused everything. And they, you know, they never bought anything. Everything had to be made. And so he kind of grew up with this extreme kind of independence and self-sufficiency in deep in him. And then and then my mom came from a very different place. She grew up on a sheep farm and she's one of like six generations of sheep farm. I'm the first, I'm the first in, in seven generations of that family not to have been born on a sheep farm. 
And when she was growing up, they never bought anything either. And they made everything themselves as well. And that was because they were just on a very isolated sheep farm, also with not a lot of spare money, but a lot of like tools and stuff lying around. So I think, but I grew up with this deep, not just from my family, I think this is a very Kiwi tray, actually, this deep assumption that you can kind of do anything and that you don't need to be able to rely on on other people. Not to say there's not strong community, there really is, but it's more like self-reliance is very prized. And the idea that you can, you should be able to turn your hand to most things and just give it a go and it's probably going to be fine. And if it's a bit rough around the edges, it doesn't really matter. Just get on with it, work hard. Like all of these seeds of, of being a startup founder, I think are there just from that background. Yeah, definitely. I, I love that. And I think some of the, the best founders I know have definitely got that resilience and self-sufficient a, a sort of attitude. And, and like you said, and we'll come on to you, they're really passionate about solving a particular problem. Before we come on to Corey Kids, I, I'm interested, you've clearly got this very background. You spent time in consulting, you worked at, in the NHS, you, you've had different roles. Would you say from that experience of, of different industries and sort of being a senior person in, in other organizations before starting your own business, did that help in terms of a sort of seeing the bigger picture of owning and running a company? How, how did those experiences play into your experience as a CEO? Yeah, it definitely helped a lot. I mean, I, you, you'll never know what the, the counterfactual would be, right? Like, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't had them, but I certainly draw on that experience a lot. And um, from McKinsey, I think I got a lot of formal training in how to structure problems how to run workshops, how to run teams, you know, how to construct a high-performing team, some really, really good, like, best practices around people um, and, you know, hiring, motivating, rewarding, like, all of that stuff. I think that 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 has been really helpful. And then um, from the NHS, I think the main thing I took was how to think about system change and um, and how to... To, how to sort of go go slow to go fast. You know, the NHS, you, you often think, uh, or people will often say that it moves slowly and in many ways it does, but it has such incredible impact when it when it does a thing. And I I started, when I first started working in the NHS, I was like totally a loose cannon because I wanted everything to happen instantly. And I actually had to learn that, you know, that old proverb, like, if you want to go fast, go, go go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I, I very much learned that from the NHS and became way more collaborative and way more comfortable, you know, having a conversation that didn't necessarily have action points at the end. Um, and, you know, there is a value in that. There is a value in just bringing people along with you. So that's what I took. And then what I took from going into lots of different organizations, um, that both, you know, at, at NHS and McKinsey through, and, and other parts of my career is I, I saw a lot of what I didn't want to replicate. I saw a lot of bad behavior, a lot of toxic workplace cultures. And it made me really determined when I founded Corey Kids to avoid a lot of the stuff that I saw and build something that was much more positive in terms of culture. Brilliant. And, and I'm really looking forward to talking about culture, something that I'm particularly passionate about. But do you mind telling our, our listeners a little bit about the inspiration behind founding uh, Corey Kids, how you knew it was the right time to, to launch? And I guess I'd be interested, do you think there is a perfect time? So there's sort of the right time to launch for the market and the right time to launch for you personally. And I think that I, I think the right time to launch for the market could have been years earlier. I mean, one of the things, the reason I said I was annoyed was because this should have existed. Someone else should have 
should have built this. I shouldn't have had to. <laughs> you know, childcare is just, it's such a terrible experience for parents. It's far too expensive. The employment for childcare is as far, it's not nearly rewarding enough. It's far too precarious. It's far too lonely. It's a, the thought put into what, what the children are actually doing all day is nowhere near enough. I mean, it's just, it's so broken and inadequate from so many different angles. And that's what I observed when I had my first baby and, and looked and started noticing this market. And it's a really big market. And, you know, it's had hardly any investment, hardly any innovation, hardly any attention from the tech people or digital people, product people, anything like that. Anyway, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that I was like, right, okay, well, I just have to do it then. So I wish someone had done it earlier. For me personally, in terms of the timing so I was 36 and I don't know what the, the average age of a founder is these days. It might be around that, actually. I might have been about about on average. I think there's a popular myth, a narrative that founders are in their 20s. And, you know, some are, but a lot are. And um, for me personally, it was really important to have a lot of things in my life sorted before I embarked on this journey, which I knew was going to be, you know, a roller coaster and really hard and all the things that doing a startup is. And so for me, that meant... I wanted to have some savings. So I, I you know, I save, saved up enough that I could go full time and, you know, kind of survive for a bit because I had already had a successful career before I started this. And the other thing that was really important to me was having my relationships sorted out. And I, I've got a bunch of friends who are single and also doing a startup and I have huge admiration for them. I think it just, it must be so hard, you know, to have few fixed points in your life. And my husband, you know, and I, I got married at 33. And my husband is absolutely and utterly my rock for, you know, my, my, our family, I've got two kids, there's no way I could, I could be doing all of this, including the business without him. So, so it was the right time to do it. You know, I was, I had been married for three years, I had a baby, I had noticed that this market was direly in need of someone building something like Curry Kids. And so it just all came together. Entrepreneurs are often portrayed as islands unto themselves. But when I spoke to Gary Stewart, CEO of Founder Tribes, he put forward a powerful case for businesses hiring proven entrepreneurs. Here's why. Start to hire minority people and women in senior roles. Because at the end of the day, a lot of companies, what they'll do, you know, Amazon is in the news these days, you know, a lot of companies, what they'll do is if you use the Amazon equivalent, they have a lot of people of color in the um, warehouses, you know, kind of moving stuff around, being the delivery people. In a law firm, maybe it's that you kind of get a lot of secretaries in, you know, or business development people in who are women and people of color, whereas the people who are making all the money and make all the decisions continue to look the same. So also don't do window dressing. I don't want to be your window dresser. Yeah. The key to everything is giving access to power to decision-making power, to check-writing power, to women and people of color. 100%. And it's something that we're acutely aware of. I mean, in our role, a big part of what we do in Exec Search is, is, is trying to push this agenda forward. And, and interestingly, because we also do recruitment at the more junior levels, we're now seeing a huge proportion of, of really talented young up-and-comers really pushing back about, no, I, I don't want to work for these sorts of businesses because there is no one that it represents me. And they want to see that representation at the top table as they should. So, you know, I, I feel like we're making 
slow progress but we are making some but it, it needs to be bigger and it needs to be uh you know I, and i think yeah we've all got a role to play there but um yeah thank you for sharing your thoughts on that i really appreciate it do you have any tips for how companies and anyone listening to this that runs businesses can kind of boost creativity and entrepreneurship across all communities in the uk because that's something we see you know comes up in conversation yeah hire entrepreneurs i mean so or incentivize people to think entrepreneurially so um I'll go with the first one first. You know, when I was at Waira, you know, the guy who is the CEO of Telefonica now, Jose Maria Alvarez Payete, he basically said to me, listen, Gary, we need someone like you because we don't know how this works, right? That was the the pitch. And I thought, wow, like he's like really powerful, like, you know, a senior executive at Telefonica. At that point, he was CEO of Latin America, I think, but not like globally. That happened a couple of years later. And I was like, that admission that like you need people who are entrepreneurial in your business, I think is the first step. Because a lot of people, I think they think of entrepreneurs, it's changed a lot in the last few years, as kind of like these charity cases as well. Like, oh, you know, I'm going to support an entrepreneur today. Like these like little people in a garage that kind of need an idea. No, like we are the future. You know what I mean? Because everybody else is the past, right? So I think that that's number one, acknowledging it and then kind of going out there and recruiting people with those traits. And then the second thing is I interviewed recently for the thing I do for Yale, a friend of mine, and she's the CEO of Reddit, right? And she's had like lots of different, you know, C-suite roles in different venture-backed companies, not just Reddit. I think she was also the president of digital at Time Incorporated, so traditional companies and before that McKinsey, AOL, all of it. But she's never actually been a founder herself. And she was like, listen, you have to know your risk profile. But even if you work in a senior position in another company, it doesn't mean in someone else's company, it doesn't mean that you can't think entrepreneurially. Right. So I think that like all she saw the difference being is that like she's not going to be the person to come up with the idea, but she's going to be the person to take the company on that next part of its journey. You know, and I think that that's also really important if you can kind of recruit people who are entrepreneurial, even if they've never been entrepreneurs. Ever wondered what investors look for in founders? If so, then here's Alice Bentink, co-founder of Entrepreneur First, on the traits she looks for when assessing founders. So it's something I've spent a lot of my time thinking about. As a talent investor, the first time we give somebody money, they, they don't have a team, they don't have an idea, they don't have a company. We're just investing in their ability and, and their, their potential. We've seen hundreds of thousands of applications over the last 10 years, and um, we've now seen enough of our companies mature and get to Series C to really understand what are the traits that lead to not just short-term success, but long-term success. And we break it down into, into two pieces. We want to understand somebody's ability and also their behaviors. What are their kind of ingrained behaviors? And I suppose the key thing with behavior is if you look at the research, past behavior is such a strong indicator of future behavior. And I think this is the one that particularly now startups and becoming a founder has become more popular, more of the norm. If you've decided today you want to be a founder and you've never previously shown any of the behaviors that might indicate that this is a good career path for you, it's probably not. You know, if you've gone on a very... Um, linear path through your life, a very culturally normal path in your life, actually then taking a massive leap, a massive change to become a founder actually may not be the right thing for you. So we, we look very deeply at people's past behaviors. So let me, let me, I can break down what we look at it within both ability and behavior. And with both of these, what we're looking for is exceptional individuals. So what we want to understand is how do you perform compared to the rest of your peer group? And this is actually where the diversity piece comes in and is a really important part of this because we want to understand who is your peer group who should we be comparing you to? 
Because if you know you've been to private school, been to Cambridge, you know, joined one of the, the top companies in the world, actually your peer group who we're going to be comparing you to is very, very different from somebody who maybe didn't go to university or dropped out of school and didn't do their A-levels. And so making sure that we're comparing people against their peer group is one of the most important things we can do to make sure that we do make robust, diverse selection decisions. So within ability, what we look for is pretty simple, smart people. And we don't say clever, we say smart because I think clever is is more academic. Yeah, we like people with very strong academics and, and they often do very well. But actually, you need to be able to apply your cleverness in very smart ways. It's about problem solving, not about sort of academic thinking. If you think about the role of a founder, largely you are just chief problem solver every day, whether it's deciding what the product is and understanding the problem of the customer to, oh my God, what are the regulatory requirements for running a, for us it was running a, a venture venture capital business. Okay, we need to learn that from scratch. Or um, this person wants to quit. How do I retain somebody when I've, I've never done that before? So problem solving speed, problem solving ability, and um, that's how we, we capture in SMART. And then the other thing we look for on ability is either technical skill. So somebody who has built stuff in the past, who maybe has a PhD in a technical subject, or somebody who isn't technical, but understands how to apply technology, understands how to be commercial about technology. And often it's something that they may have done in quite a hacky way growing up. So either they, you know, they're largely non-technical, but maybe when they were younger, they, they built and sold websites, or um, maybe they've been a product manager and have worked directly with technical teams. But we build software companies. And so having this either technical ability or the ability to think about tech in a very commercial way and know how to apply technologies is super important. So on the behavior side, I think that's where it's kind of some of the more interesting stuff. And ability for me is much more of a hygiene factor. Behavior is is where we really understand, okay, is this going to be somebody who we think could be uh, an exceptional performer on Entrepreneur First? So behavior, there's two things we look for. Are you an outlier and are you a leader? Why you need both of those is there's a bunch of outliers in the world that go off and do incredible things by themselves. The key thing about being a founder is you you can't do it by yourself. You often need a co-founder, but you also need to take a team on that journey with you. So from a leadership perspective, we want to see that you've generated followership. I think it's very easy for people to say like, oh, I'm a leader. Okay, well, if you're a leader, show me who followed you. Where did you make a decision that was difficult or unusual and you took people on that journey so it might be that you convinced somebody to do something that's a form of leadership Um, or it might be that you actually led a team to to do something and achieve something on the outlier side there are two things we look for one is drive to achieve and I think this is a really really key one you know being an entrepreneur is so unbelievably hard it is just as you know it's relentless it's uh, but you have to be the kind of person who is willing to get up every day take the shitstorm that usually comes with being a founder and focus on trying to achieve something. And so we talk about drive to achieve because we don't want people who have just attempted things. And it's fine if you've failed, but if you've always failed, it's probably not a good indicator. We want people who have failed in the past, learned from those failures, um, and then have achieved crazy things, often in like many different areas. So some of my favorite people, when I look at EF applications, they've been, you know, there was one application where this guy had been one of the on the kind of Olympic GB youth squad to prepare for the Olympics got injured and then went to Imperial, was top of their year at physics, um, but then also released a dance music track that was sampled by one of the biggest EDM musicians in the world. And this is all before they're like 
22. Um, so it's just like achievement after achievement after achievement. But then the kind of counterbalance to this is you need to be the kind of person that challenges convention. So if you've done that linear achievement where it is, you know, you've got good A-levels, you've gone to a good university, you've got a good job. Yes, you're achieving. But actually, at what point have you challenged convention, taken the unusual path, taken a risk? And that's the balance that we want to see. We want people who are constantly achieving things, but they're also taking unusual paths, taking risks, doing the unexpected. And we find that the combination of those kind of ability and behaviours pieces, they're very, very strong indicators, very predictive of who ultimately will be successful. I think one of the key things to remember is you do have to work really hard as a founder. Being a founder is not a lifestyle choice. People talk about lifestyle businesses as opposed to like high scale venture backed businesses. There's no such thing as a lifestyle business. Being a founder is a terrible lifestyle. And I think you do have to acknowledge that and accept that there are some things in your life that you won't be able to do because of the choice that you've taken. And one of the ways I've always thought about it is there's a sort of micro versus macro here. My day to day micro is pretty stressful and sometimes not particularly fun. But actually what keeps me going is the macro that what I'm doing with my career and my life, because it's not just my career, it's, you know, it's most of my waking hours still 10 years in is thinking or, or working on entrepreneur first. But I love the macro. I love that ultimately the problem that I'm working on is one of the most interesting problems in the world. Our mission is to transform the lives of the most impactful people. Who, who wouldn't want to spend most of their waking hours thinking about that? So I think as a founder, one of the most important ways to prevent burnout is to be truly obsessed and delighted by the problem that you're solving. If you love your customers and you love solving the problem for your customers, I find that gives me huge resilience and huge enjoyment. Legendary Rugby World Cup winning coach Sir Clive Woodward clearly knows a thing or two about harnessing talent. Here he talks about the importance of creating an environment where people feel safe to express themselves. But we start to hire top people in terms of the coaches, top people in terms of fitness and nutrition, all these guys, to a whole, whole new level. And But the players had to, had to buy into this. They had to say, we're actually part of this. And that's what happened. We, had, we, we created this amazing team. But I, I say this to anyone in business, your job as the leader is to make everybody in that team on a daily basis. How can we get better? How can we get better? Well, how can you get better? And if I improve you, James, my experience is you'll never forget that. If I, and you, only you will know. You, you can't kind of pull the wheels over your eyes. But if you generally help somebody, they won't forget you. So my role is trying to help every individual player to become a world-class player. And then the team stuff takes care of itself in many ways. It's brilliant. And it's it's so interesting because Will Greenwood came on this podcast and he, when I asked him for some advice, he, he just said, try and make every day just a little bit better. Just try and improve on something every day. So that's clearly really, really ingrained with that crop. You mentioned the big characters you had in the squad. I mean, very, very well, well known, hugely talented, but balancing different personalities, quite big egos in a team is always difficult. So what advice do you have for anyone listening to this that may have that type of team dynamic at the moment? How did you cope with that? Well, I loved it. I mean, it'd be very clear. And, and again, I'm trying to put this, when I keep sport and business, the same thing. I'd always hire the most talented player. You know, I want the most talented player. But then that's like stage one. Once you've got them in the room, it's then how you manage that talent. Because sometimes they're not the most straightforward people. Sometimes what I've found, the most talented people can be, you know, awkward, mavericks, various names have these players. But they're the people who want your actual team. And again, there's no, there's no shortcut to this. The only way to manage them is, is on a one-on-one basis. You know, and I'd sit down with the players. I probably had, I like to think I had more one-on-one meetings 
with players than any other coach I know. But I, what I was trying to get through to them is my job is to make you a better player. You know, and what I found with all these different characteristics and egos, whatever, end of the day, every one of them wants to be successful, wants to win. And what I'm saying to them, this got to be a two-way thing. I'm going to give everything to you and plus, but I need it back from you in return. And if any stage I don't, th- I don't think I'm getting it, there's going to be a fallout. And, you know, that way you, you kind of lose some people on the way, but that's all part of, of it. Sometimes people don't want to do that. But the real winners, and I've main, named a few of them already, they, they want this. What I was able to say to them, because I, I played for England, and, you know, in, in, when I played for England, I played 21 times, which doesn't sound very many caps today, but that was over four years. We didn't play that many games in those days. We didn't have, you know, it was just the Six Nations. And what I'd got through to them, you know, this is just look around the room. We've got a chance here. You know, we started off number six in the world. But look around the play. If we do this, you'll never, ever forget this, ever. And we got to do something special. But every single person's got to actually get involved in this. And that's why I find, you know, different characters. And the great thing about it is understanding that's why you know, I say great teams are great individuals. Every character is different. Just to stand in front of a team of people are going to do this, this, and this. That doesn't work. You've got to break it down one by one and then have your team meetings so they all know what's going on. But also ask them, you know, I've got, I've got no problem you questioning what I'm doing, but do not go outside this room and then say, this is rubbish. If it's rubbish, tell me to my face. Yeah. And we're going to get on this. And, you know, it, you kind of win a World Cup and everyone thinks this is incredibly perfect scenario. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. That's not the real world. It kicked off at times, big time. I'm sure These it did. Quite feisty because they all got quite, they wanted to win. If someone did something daft in a game and we kind of reviewed it, it would kind of, Things were pointing and yeah. cool, calm down. But that's what you wanted, and you created this yeah. environment. But I wanted them to be individuals, and I think I think they are. And you, you spoke about Will Greenwood; it was just fantastic. But we had this incredibly bright team. Yeah, look at what these guys have all gone on to do now. Without exception, they're all been successful. So this wasn't a bunch of yes people sitting around nodding when I spoke. It was the complete opposite. Yeah, and that's no. what I wanted to actually encourage. I wanted to encourage debate, disagreement. You know, and one of my favorites saying, there's no such thing as a daft idea. If you've got an idea, you stand up and say it. And let me decide where it's a daft idea. And at times we had some pretty interesting team meetings that all kicked off at times, but which I loved. And I said, but I don't care about this in the team room. As long as we all walk out of that room holding hands, smiling with everyone, everything's great. The team room was quite a sometimes hostile place because we wanted to win. And we questioned each other. We weren't doing this stuff. That's brilliant. And and you can see just the encouraging that candor and empowering the team to have their own ideas, but then all being unified by that mission. You can see how powerful that can be. There's a, a saying out there, it's a bit of a sort of a, a technical term, it's called psychological safety. All, all, the, all psychological safety means is, is trying to make sure within your business, people feel safe in terms of putting forward new ideas, new, 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 new thoughts. And even in the rugby team, it's amazing. Sometimes people felt a little bit intimidated because they didn't want to make a fool of themselves or they didn't want to question a senior player or you may have an 18-year-old player join you. When Johnny Wilkinson joined the team, he was 17. Wow. Couldn't get a word out of him. He <laughs> talked to him now. And I just felt so intimidated by looking across the table. There's Martin Johnson sitting there, Lawrence Delhelio. Yeah, it's unsurprising. <laughs> yeah, well, I did as well. But, no, but, but you've got to get through all that and you've got to create... Psychological safety means an area where people totally feel confident they can put forth their views and they don't sit there and hold things back. And that's key to running a successful business or team, creating that uh, the environment that people feel safe in making these comments and views. 
that's brilliant advice and i'm sure there'll be lots of leaders listening to this trying to and wanting to take that into their businesses Juliet Davenport, CEO and founder of Good Energy, shared so many candid insights of her entrepreneurial journey. Here she discusses how essential it is to get the right people around you at the right time. I think what's really interesting about starting a business from scratch and then growing it is that the people who join the business at the beginning aren't necessarily the people you need at different phases of the business. And that's always really, really tough, actually. And I think... And especially it depends on whether they want to grow at the same pace as the business, because I've been always quite lucky in that I've managed to invest in myself, either through external appointments or through uh, sort of just appearing and going out to conferences and, and being there. So I think there's been a lot of I've been able to do that. But if people are don't have that mindset, it becomes very difficult to, to for them to keep up with the business. And so they're, they're great maybe for four or five years, but you then go through another phase of growth and change. So I think that's probably been my biggest challenge. I think in terms of some of the best hires, uh, we have a head of comms who I think is awesome. And you need somebody who fundamentally gets the business. What's great is when you get to that level of trust is that you barely need to check anything before it goes out. So you get a speed, you get that kind of thing really working together. We've got a head of investor relations again, who is amazingly strategic, really kind of long vision. Again, great to talk to because you, you need people in the business who can think short term and kind of make sure things get done. But you've also, the role of the CEO is got to look further out to make sure to see what's coming at you and see how you're going to position the business to to deal with that. And I think being able to have those two pieces in place to look after you. And then I think you, you just need some really good operators in the business to make sure that the team operates really well. And we've got some fantastic people in our business in terms of in our finance team, in our in our ops team. I think I think at one point good was great at R and D. I, I have to say I think we've lost our edge a bit on that. I'm hoping we're gonna get it back. We had some great people in the R and D team and they really transformed us in terms of how we were thinking about new proposition and product. And I think sometimes businesses get get a bit complacent about how they should be innovating and what they should be doing in that and and when you get to a certain size you've got a lot of people who are trying to control costs all the time but you still need to do investment so this, it's really getting that balance that's really tough James to be honest so I think we've seen quite a major shift already with business not all business but a, a lot of um, customer facing business actually and investor facing businesses so businesses that have been keen to make sure that they're looking after their social investors, they're looking after, we're seeing the pension funds begin to shift. Those businesses are having to look at this seriously. And that that's that's not trying to take too many shortcuts. That is about going, this is going to carry on. And so we've seen some brilliant leadership by sort of some of the leading brands in the world saying they're going to go 100% renewable. They're going to take investment sustainability. They're looking at the circular economy. So I, I, I kind of can see a lot of action beginning to shift in those areas. I think we still see in the fossil industry some quite backward looking approach. And definitely there's a range of companies. Some are already at the forefront, already beginning to see, yeah, we're not going to be a fossil fuel company in 10, 20 years time. And some going, well, we don't really believe it all, but we'll pretend in the process. And there's there is a massive range, I would say. And so I think 
what we're seeing from the marketplace is if we continue to see investors saying this is what we want and we continue to see consumers saying this is what we want, I think we'll just continue to move forward. And at some point, either the ones who are behind will die or they'll have to catch up very quickly. And it will be more expensive to catch up later rather than now. So I I, th- I think we are seeing a shift, but it's it's not ideological. And but But actually, to be honest, you don't necessarily need an ideological shift to make people move. Grace Beverly has achieved so much by the age of 24. She's founded two fitness brands, featured in Forbes 30 Under 30, and she's just published a top-selling book. No one is better placed to talk about life as a young CEO as her. So here are some of her insights. I decided to write this book because I felt that it was a book that I really needed. I think that, you know, I often, I guess when I was asked or approached about publishing and kind of said, you should do this, you should do this. I just thought again and again, like, I'm not ready to do this. I'm 24. I can't write a memoir. I can't, you know, like give people this, like I can give, you know, I can give people like hard earned advice, but what I can't do is be like, this is how you do this. And actually what this was about was me understanding that actually I think that the working world has changed so inconceivably for in kind of the past 30 years. And yet we expect to work the same way. And we expect that to just accept the labels of kind of being like a lazy generation and entitled generation, and actually not examining the fact that, okay, well, if a whole generation's lazy, and there's actually no reason for that, because we're not all the same people, then surely it's a product of the time, surely it's a product of the fact that we're expected to be interconnected all the time, to be working all the time to monetize all of our hobbies. And kind of, I'd very much internalized that idea that I needed to be working all the time. And every time I was resting, I was lazy, rather than that being an inevitable helpful part of my working life. And so I was, I kind of started asking and talking about these questions. And I just realized I was like, actually, every business book I read that I kind of really love, and I try and stick to for kind of a week, two weeks, I'm like, I'm going to be this person, I'm going to do this and this. There's a reason why, yeah, there's a reason why it often doesn't work. And that's because it negates the idea of rest and negates the idea that actually, sometimes you need to step back in order to be able to kind of go forward. And then on the other side of that, you know, every book I read about being better at balancing this, that and the other and how to be a better friend and kind of more balanced and better at sleeping was just another thing that is hard to achieve. Like it was just another thing that we're kind of this idea of balance, I guess, being almost sold um, in order to achieve and then kind of thinking it's a good thing, but actually it's just adding 20 more things onto our plate. And then I felt that that or the ones that were particularly kind of rest oriented often forgot the other side of actually sometimes you just need to work fucking hard sometimes you just need to get that project done self-care isn't getting in the bath when your to-do list is longer than the bath itself like that's not what self-care is and so I started kind of I guess asking all of these questions and talking about them a bit and they started really I guess resonating with people so I decided as you do when you come into a global pandemic to write a book pitch and I, I pitched it to the various publishers and people were really really interested in the idea and I ended up going with a publisher Hutch- Hutchinson at um, Penguin Random House who really really believed in the idea and understood the fact that yes I come from a specific I guess point of view and people want to hear 
Grace Beverly, like productivity tips, working hard, managing time, but actually understanding that that wasn't what it was all going to be about. It was going to be a wider exploration. And it was going to, yes, you know, what I hope people get from it is a kind of productivity blueprint for how to navigate this new working world. But also there are think PC bits in it. There's analysis of our generation. There's a lot of research that's gone into it. And actually it's wider than just being like, this is how to be grace. And that was really important for me in choosing a publisher because I thought that that was exactly what was going to not then miss miss the mark again and just give people another set of 10 things that they need to do in order to, you know, <laughs> achieve this big yeah. kind of bubble of success. Brilliant. And I will be purchasing a copy. I hope anyone that's listening to this does as well because it sounds like something we can all learn a lot from. And I know personally, I, I struggle with balancing all the different things in my life and uh you know always being on is something all entrepreneurs know about and the hustle culture is very prevalent in in the startup world and in terms of your own experience you just describe yourself as a lazy workaholic can you just tell our listeners a bit about what you mean by that so i think you know within the book i kind of break that down so on the lazy side i think that it's becoming really problematic and quite complex that we view people that work 40 hour weeks as lazy. And I know as well that my weeks are often longer than that, not to kind of be like, wow, like, congratulations, me, pat on the back. But I, you know, and then I was also generating this view of myself where I did feel lazy. I felt that every time someone posted a graphic being like, you know, while they're asleep, we're working and like all of that, I was like, oh, God, well, I actually really value my eight hours of sleep. That's something that's a real non negotiable for me because I actually just can't function on less than that. And sometimes I have to, but actually, the majority of the time, I really do need to, whether that's found through a nap in the day because of a crisis the night before or whatever, but kind of all of these various different things. And then, but then also I know that I, you know, I am a workaholic in a lot of ways. And I sit on that side and I was kind of thinking, how do I feel like I'm lazy and like I'm not doing enough and like I'm not achieving enough and like I'm not ticking all of these boxes. And at the same time, I know that I have a really probably unhealthy relationship with how much I feel I need to work in order to validate myself. And the line I've guess I guess I've kind of wrongly drawn linking my productivity and self-worth together. And so I, you know, I, I kind of deconstruct it within the book, but I also think there's an area of it where you know, it's valid. And I think in a way we should all aim <laughs> in some ways to be to be lazier and then in some ways to be more worky, I guess is the best way I could describe <laughs> it. Yeah. But but yeah, that's kind of how I view it. Rachel Carroll of Crew Kids is a master of adapting to new circumstances, as her and her team have shown through the pandemic. Here's how they leveraged fast decision making. Yeah, it's definitely been hard. I actually just saw this morning um, the A16C report on marketplaces and they have a section on childcare and they showed that childcare is down 61% through the pandemic year. And uh, we actually grew last year. So when I saw that, I'm feeling quite smug, actually. (laughs) As you should, that's amazing. I I screenshotted it and said to my board, but, you know, not to say that was easy, like without blood and sweat went into that result. And so when it first happened, we lost a large amount of our, you know, demand falls off a cliff, first lockdown in March. 
and um, lots of parents think that having a nanny in their home is illegal. It turns out it's not, but the government guidance is extremely unclear and remains unclear for at least the first six to eight weeks. So we were still operating, but what was very, very, very frustrating was I was talking to the government. Uh, I was involved in a, in a in a working group, and so I knew and I had been assured that what we were doing was legal and fine. But the government guidance, you know, fair, fair play to them. They, they were doing a lot of things very quickly, but the government guidance was unclear. And so we had people saying, you know, what, what are you doing? It's immoral. You shouldn't be doing this. And I knew it was explicit, it was allowed. That was very frustrating. But we lost about half of our supply because a lot of them had, you know, were from Italy or Portugal or whatever, and they all went home. So there, was, so there were lots of shocks to the marketplace. We tried out a whole bunch of tests. So we tried, you know, things like virtual nannying, which worked in some circumstances, and that was good. And then we immediately started just supporting our existing nannies and families as much as we possibly could. So my team were just freaking incredible. Like over the weekend, from the lockdown until the first Monday, they over the weekend, they came out with this weekly plans and like daily activities that we sent out to all our nannies. And this was I mean, it took schools months to get to this. Yeah, point. that's <laughs> incredible. It was, it was honestly, I was so proud. It was so great. And the other thing that my team did, which was so brilliant, was we actually invented our own furlough scheme before the government came out with their, with their furlough scheme. We, really? Of course, we didn't call it furlough. We called it Pause My Arrangement, it was the name of it. <laughs> and uh, not quite as snappy as furlough. <laughs> um, but we came out with it immediately. Again, like we came out with it the first week and we had... You you know, all this was policy, which was essentially our own furlough scheme. And so, we, you know, we sent this out and a whole load of um, families paused their arrangement with their nannies. And that allowed the nanny family relationship to continue, even though the, the nanny was not actually going to work. And it meant that, you know, the nanny got a little bit of money. And that was really good. So we just hunkered down and focused on like, what can we do? Just don't even think about like, unit economics or, you know, long-term product, like, well, let's just help wherever we can. Oh, another thing we did, which I was really proud of, was um, we trained a whole bunch of medical students who wanted to provide free childcare for NHS workers. And, uh, and so that group formed very quickly and they approached us and said, you know, you train nannies, can you train us? And we said we would be delighted to. And we didn't charge a penny for that. We didn't make any money. You know, obviously it cost us, but we just wanted to be good citizens. And so and it was just great being able to, you know, contribute in this very exciting like time of national need. And it felt like everyone was pulling together and, and we were all just doing what we could. So that was like the first three months, three or four months. And we, we did all that stuff. And then... Um, and then things started to open up and we were like, great, you know, eat out to help out in August. Every, everything, everything's getting better. Oh, God. And then freaking. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Groundhog Day again. Oh, yeah. And then it was just a grind. I mean, it's we twisted and turned so many different ways and we... We just tried to focus on our product and emerge stronger than we went in. That was really our, our main goal while, while trying to burn as, as little money as possible. And, uh, and we've actually done, I think, really well on that. So our product's definitely stronger now than it was. And we are just really looking forward to getting back to growing like we were before the pandemic now. Yeah, and I th I'm, I'm sure many people listening to this will be feeling the same way. But I mean, firstly, kudos to you. I mean, you, you've shown some incredible leadership, I think, during that what is a very trying time. And I just wondered whether, you know, it sounded like your team really got around this, you know, 
got together, pulled through and, and delivered some incredible stuff and did some great work for the community. Would you put that down to one particular thing? Is that down to the people that you've hired? Is it the culture you've built? I'm just interested because I guess a lot of companies, you know, it would have been panic stations and, and possibly wouldn't have, have, have thrived in the way that your business has. Is there something, do you think there's a secret source there that anyone listening to this can learn from? Yeah, definitely. I think it is, it is definitely recruiting and culture. So, I mean, I think recruiting is a very important part of culture. And I, I think of them as just part of the same thing, really. So we recruit based on values as well as skills. Uh, sometimes you hear people say that they just recruit on values and I've never done, I've never done that. Like you, yeah, we, they have to be really good at their jobs as well, yeah. but we do recruit on values as well. And so everyone, everyone at Corey Kids without exception is totally aligned with the mission. And we spend a lot of time just reminding people, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. We try to make it really real. We talk about, you know, individual nannies, individual families a lot. We kind of highlight like wonderful stories that have that come out when a nanny does something incredible. And, you know, parents are always saying that like, we've changed their life and stuff. And we try to just remind everyone why we're here all the time, even if they're doing like back end code, you know, every, everyone, everyone has that connection. So that's one thing. And then, um, yeah, and then the other thing I think is we try to give people a lot of autonomy and partner that with a lot of transparency. So, you know, we, we always try to give everyone maximum context and then trust them to make their own decisions and try to be really clear about what our overall strategy is, but encourage innovation within that. And what that means is that when you're in a fast moving environment like a crisis or, you know, all of a sudden the environment changes, all of a sudden there's a lockdown you don't, people are not waiting to be told what to do. Like they have all the information they need. You know, they understand the context, they know the product, they they trust each other, like they know they're all mission aligned. You know, all you need to do is sort of remind everyone, okay, here's the overall strategy. And in our case, it was like, make the product better. We want to be stronger when we come out than when we get in. Help our parents and our nannies do anything you can, like to to help them out, no matter what it is. And all you need is like that level of guidance and permission. And then when you've got smart, mission aligned people who who understand the context, they'll just do the stuff. So you know the the example of the weekly activities and the daily plan as an example. I I didn't tell anyone to do that. Like one of our junior people just did that, and you know she has an early childhood degree and she knew what she was doing, and she was like, this is a good thing to do, so she just did it. And the same with the furlough scheme. I didn't tell anyone to do that. You know, a couple of our people just said, oh, well, I think we I think we should do something like this. You know, just a, here's, a, here's a one pager on it. And, and I said, oh, it looks brilliant. Go ahead. You know, and then they just did it. So you can I think that's when you know you've got it right. When you've got you're empowering people and talented individuals to to come up with ideas and run with things. And, and you know, they're all bought in by that same mission. That's just that's just amazing to see. And, and, and you said uh, you talked about just being really focused as well. And I think that's an area where I've seen some startups and scale ups. Things can go slightly awry when, you know, everyone's trying to do lots of different things and be really proactive. But actually having that common goal and that, you know, it sounds like the team are really behind that mission, which really helps. Yeah, I mean, this for me, that is the hardest thing because mm. I want to do everything. I think this is a pretty common <laughs> founder thing, you know, also yeah. it's very common when you have a very strong vision to be super impatient that it doesn't exist yet and, and want to, you know, not want to build it brick by brick, but want to build like loads of bricks at once. And I definitely suffer from that. I'm very conscious of it. And uh, so prioritizing and not doing things, I find it almost physically painful, but it, <laughs> it just has to be done. But I do find that really hard. 
how have you worked on that yourself? Because I must admit, you know, I run a much smaller business, six person business, but I, I, I've struggled with exactly the same thing. I, I'm a bit of a, I love the variety. I love trying new things. I love learning stuff. I love, you know, yeah, I just, I get very excited by that challenge, but I know it's not always in the business's best interest. So how have you had to kind of sort of evolve your leadership style to, uh, to not always go after everything? Yeah, I've asked a lot of people the question, you know, people I really admire in business, like how do you figure out how many things your business can cope with doing at once? Like if you want to do 10 different things, okay, you probably shouldn't do 10, but is five too many? Is three too many? I found that question hard. And the best answer I've ever had is that the limiting factor is basically management capacity. So you you should figure out who your best managers are, like who's your management cadre, and then figure out how many projects they can work on at once and maybe like as in overseeing. And then you can put, you know, whether it's freelancers or contractors or agencies or permanent people, you can put them underneath your managers. But the limiting factor is the manager's capacity. And I find that quite a useful way of thinking about it. And um, the other thing is I find it very helpful to work with people who have the opposite instinct to me on this. So I've worked with a couple of people. They happen to have been product and tech people. I think a lot of engineers really, really like to work on a very small number of things, ideally one. And I find talking to them really helpful because they just always challenge me on like, <laughs> like, why are you doing so many things? Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, that I'm, and I'm sure uh, others listening to this will find that, that really helpful. To round up part one of this special two-part episode, we hear from probably the wisest person I've ever met, the former chief business officer for Google X and the founder of the One Billion Happy Movement, Mo Gaudat, and hear his take on the importance of mentorship. Everyone's my mentor. I had Ali as my biggest mentor ever in my life, right? But everyone that comes my way is a mentor. And I think having a mentor is about admitting to yourself that you need to be a mentee. Okay. And if you become that, then everyone is teaching you something, everyone. And, and if you have the humbleness to tell yourself, everyone knows something better than I do. Okay. Whatever that thing is, then everyone will be your mentor. My advice, however, is I had a guest, uh, Sunil Gupta on my, on my podcast He's actually releasing next week, basically saying it's not just the mentor. He calls it a circle of support. Mm-hmm.